AI will make bad people far too powerful. AI is going to take everyone's jobs. Humans won't even be needed for work and production and therefore will make everyone permanently poor. And it could very well dominate humanity and cause the end of our species. If these things are even slightly true, then it is critical that AI technology be controlled, limited, and licensed. Doesn't it? What underlying beliefs inform these ideas? And what does it say about us? This is AI Unchained Episode 11, The Fears of AI. What is up, guys? Welcome back to AI Unchained. I am Guy Swan, and this is the philosophical and practical guide to AI for those seeking liberty in the digital age. I hope you guys had a great week because we have a really fun episode to dig into today. This is, I actually went through and dug into a bunch of different reads and can't find anything good on like Medium. It's always like Financial Times and you know, there's like a handful of pieces that I've collected and it's always some uh, publication that's mad at people for sharing it out because they want it behind their walled garden. And that's just not my philosophy. I think information begs, it longs to be free and accessible in all the different forms. And AI, I think, is proving it. The ease with which it could be turned into a hundred different versions of itself in different languages spoken in my voice even though I didn't specifically read it, like the number of tools that are, I mean, it's just over and over again, these tools are just showing up more and more. And I think one of the things that they enlighten is that we see the same patterns. There are these, these modeling, these vector model weights for patterns that we have in so many different things that we do. And that these things can be layered on top of each other. I really think we're going to have a model for almost everything and every way that we interact with stuff. In fact, I just saw one the other day that's referred to as a screenshot to code. And I'll have the link in the show notes for you guys to check it out. I just shared it with my brother a little while ago. Um, but it's it literally allows you to take a screenshot of a website and it will turn the website. It uses GPT-4 uh, a vision, which is one of their new GPT models or whatever that's a, the multimodality. But it literally scans the screenshot of like a website or something and then writes HTML and CSS code to essentially mimic it, to create virtually the same thing. It, sometimes it's just close, but it's pretty incredible. And it's so hard to underestimate what a powerful tool that is that anyone who just has an idea, like think about this, you could Photoshop a website and then write it into actual HTML and CSS. The gap between ideation and creation is practically, it's virtually gone, like 80 to 90% of it is gone. But in, in kind of digging through, looking at some of the tools that came out just in the last week, or at least that I was exposed to in the last week, and then a couple of the reads that I was thinking of doing for the show, I kept finding a common thread of this disconnect between the people who are afraid of AI and the people who are optimistic about AI. And one of the things I I've, I've, think I've pinpointed, one really important underlying argument or underlying belief 
about the people who are genuinely and hugely afraid of AI. And that it's very, very, I think it's specifically informed by the liberty mindset. It makes it make a little bit more sense as to why people are so afraid of this thing. Or not even this thing like it's one thing. It's, it's literally a concept of a type of tool. And when I kind of had this moment in reading the comments underneath one of the Financial Times pieces that I was uh, digging into, I kind of had, had a light bulb go off and, because I just saw it in the way that they worded the comment. And it struck me, especially since this is a liberty-minded podcast, it struck me what critical part of the philosophy of those who are certain that AI is going to end the world or that AI makes the normal, the average person too powerful is what underlying belief has to happen or has to be there, has to be present for that concept of everyone being on an equal playing field in power, for that to be something to fear and for something to spell disaster for the world. So that is what we are getting into today. The fears of AI. A quick thank you to CoinKite, the makers of the cold card hardware wallet for both keeping my Bitcoin secure and also for supporting this show. If you are looking for a way to secure your long-term savings and protecting it from the Swiss cheese security nightmare that is the internet and mobile phones, what you need is the cold card hardware wallet and you can get 9% off with code Bitcoin Audible. If you are going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and you are starting to invest in money that isn't constantly inflated and counterfeited by some banking institution or government, then this is the only way to safely hold it. And you can learn all about the strategies, the mechanisms, and the tools at swan.com. Swan is a service that has the full suite of Bitcoin financial services, including instant purchases, automatic and recurring savings accounts so you can DCA, automatic withdrawals and free withdrawals, they pay for the network fee so that without any hassle, it can be sent straight to your cold card hardware wallet. They've got business accounts so you can have employee benefit plans that pay out portions in Bitcoin for savings. They have the Swan IRA if you are looking to invest with more traditional mechanisms and the Swan Vault if you want the benefit of holding your own keys but also want that benefit of a backup service of an institution that's helping to protect it in the case of any emergency or disaster situation. Swan.com slash guy, G-U-I, is by far one of the best places to get started in the Bitcoin space. So check them both out and also shoot them a thank you for supporting this show. The links and details are right in the description of this show. So one of the articles that kind of sparked this line of thought was a Financial Times article uh, with Andrew Ng. It's really just a breakdown of a transcript of a conversation between Andrew Ng and uh, Robert uh, McMorrow. R Ryan, not Robert. Ryan McMorrow. But it's titled, Andrew Ng, quote, Do we think the world is better off with more or less intelligence? And the subtitle is, The Computer Scientist Says It's a Mistake to Fall for the Doomsday Hype on AI, and that regulators who do will only benefit vested interests. And it actually mirrors a lot of the thoughts that I have shared on this show, and I think he has a couple of really good points to make specifically about this. And when we go back to the episode, the read for uh, the 
the gentle introduction into large language models, which if you haven't heard it and you want to kind of get a breakdown of kind of the mental model of what's happening inside these LLMs, I think it's a really, really great way to get a little bit of perspective about what this thing is. But I will briefly, just for the sake of this discussion, I will very briefly and from a very high level kind of explain what, what the software or the kind of computational primitive that these modeling systems are in fact enabling. But there's also a prominent underlying belief that informs a lot of these fears about AI. And if you listen carefully to what people say when they say that this is going to be a disaster, this is going to end humanity, uh, and, you know, some, anybody, anybody could just use this tool to bring down the whole world or whatever the hell they say. It always comes from a default and assumed belief system or mental framework. And this is where I think it's so important to understand, to be able to step back or to be able to look behind the claim at what belief is informing it so that we aren't just accepting the presumption of the reality that they claim is true, because the claim is completely dependent upon that believed reality about people, about the world. And if we cannot see and identify that, then we cannot properly understand where the disconnect is in the conversation about whether AI is going to destroy the world or whether it should be quote-unquote controlled or enabled. In other words, it should be as open and as publicly available as we can possibly make it not because it's dangerous, but because to have only a few people with the power of AI is extremely dangerous. The only way to mitigate that problem is for everyone to have as open and as free access as possible. So what is the mental framework that lends to those fears, to those concepts? We will start with the first one that I mentioned at the introductory of this episode, is that it will make people too powerful Therefore, it needs to be controlled. The first thing I think to unpack here is understanding where AI lies in the kind of the tech stack, so to speak. And I think just looking at the available tools today, not even the models that are going to be there, but just what we have already discovered, we have NERFs or neural radiance fields. These are models that essentially use the direction and the tracking of light on objects to build the appearance or the simulation of a 3D environment with all of the correct lighting. It's fascinating. There is a Corridor Digital video showing how to do this with one of the tools and how incredibly powerful it will be in VFX. And then there is the Gaussian splat, which, I, which is a different way to do a very, very similar thing. And some of these models or some of these systems can actually be used to turn 2D images into 3D spaces. Obviously, with the exception that if you turn too much to the side, you'll get like kind of stretched out objects and stuff. But with just a little bit of movement, you can separate the things in the foreground or farther in the foreground from each thing further in the background. And you give this 3D effect that can just make minor or slow movements through an image that genuinely give the perception or the, that sense of a three-dimensional space. So these are spatial models. Then you have things like the Animate Anyone, the image diffusion. You have video and image diffusion models. 
And these things both take, there's, Animate Anyone is a new one that's absolutely fascinating because it's so much better than the previous uh, animation uh, modeling because there's, I, I don't even know how, I can't remember all four of the models or for all four of the mechanisms used in the model, um, but I, I believe that is the one that actually has nerfs included, that it uses the radiance field design or, or the radiance field method to actually build a pseudo 3D perspective about the movement of a character or an object. And what you do with Animate Anyone, what you do with this, this tool, is you give it... I'll, I'll try to have a, a link uh, in the show notes. Actually, I'll, I'll make sure to do the link at bitcoinaudible.com slash AI. Again, bitcoinaudible.com slash AI. Animate Anyone, I think, is actually at the top of the list. If it isn't, I'll move it up there. But this is just a, a collection of links that I've been doing. I need to update it. Actually, I've added a bunch of things recently. But um, uh, I'll try to refresh it and update it and put those at the top of the list. But Animate Anyone, one of the really crazy things about it is you give it an image, you give it a 2D image, and then you give it a video of a pose. So it's basically a control net for a video animation. And then it will take the image of the person or the object or the thing and then animate it according to the pose. And it is shockingly good at what it does, especially when we're talking about literally anime. We're talking about animated objects and characters because in that context, minor defects or, you know, breaking in the animation isn't totally unexpected. You know, there's a lot of, there's actually some animation styles that explicitly take advantage of that to give a certain aesthetic. So this is an insanely powerful tool when it comes to storytelling, especially from the context of anime and animation. And this is just because it's the first few, it's the first iterations of it. Again, we are barely a year into this, into the public release of these sorts of models and ideas, or, or this, this conception of how to build systems. Now, another one that uh, I believe I mentioned earlier, but I'll bring up again, is the screenshot to code. It will literally read, it uses G, uh, GPT Vision and uh, OpenAI's uh, ChatGPT4 um, in order to look at an image, to look at a picture, and then it will read it out and it can build the code, the HTML and CSS, which specifically you actually have multiple options. I've got it open right here. Where is it? Um, uh, don't sign in. Okay. Okay. So we have HTML plus Tailwind. Then we have React plus Tailwind, Bootstrap, Ionic plus Tailwind, and SVG. So I know what SVG is, I know what React and HTML are, I'm not familiar with Bootstrap or Ionic. But what this is doing is it's creating a model between that, that combines or bridges the connections and the, the code, the relationship between the code and the image, the output of what a website looks like. And going back to the episode we did, the read uh, two about the eulogy for programming, for coding as, a, as an art form, so to speak, this is another really powerful example of exactly that. This, this legitimately, legitimately may be the future of web development. Not even the future, like, like, like right now. Right now in just a couple of months and within a year, like it, doing it the old-fashioned way might be ridiculous. Like, especially with the speed that these things are actually moving and improving. 
Then you just have chat models. Then you have the ability to summarize stuff. You have the ability to create LLM agents that combine a bunch of other LLMs. You have vector models that will uh, vectorize text and allow you to both just general search, but also have kind of context aware, uh, you know, pulling out excerpts and pulling out um, summaries and things of text because you have it in a certain form that the LLM can specifically interact really well with, even in a, a potentially low um, uh, context length environment. Then you have image analysis, uh, and like the models I just talked about in the previous episode with Olama, uh, Olama was specifically the one that was a terminal-based local LLM or, or local model runner that has Lava in it. And Lava is the one that is multimodal in the sense that it will create LLM outputs, it will create text outputs from the description of an image locally on your machine. Or excuse me, from the image itself, it will create the description, not from the description. Then you have Whisper and things like Whisper and Bark, which are just kind of two examples. There's also Koki, uh, TTS. I'm not sure exactly how the naming works there, um, but that's another form of something like Bark. Uh, and then Whisper. Whisper is actually the only one I know that I can run on my computer right now. I'm sure there are others out there. But these are text to speech and speech to text. So Whisper is the one that I use to build my transcription app, micro app that I built on my computer that allows me to just drop any video or audio file. If you don't know about that or you haven't seen that, I will have the link in the show notes to that um, video on YouTube. Uh, it's not that hard, and I also have it available in a folder so that you can just check it out and download your own version of it if you have Mac or if you want to modify it to work for Linux or Windows. But it is an amazing tool that I use constantly, like constantly, every single, in fact, I was just doing a video clip earlier this morning and I needed to do a video based on an audio clip that I had already done, like just taken from an episode like this, and I needed video of me saying it, and I, I could have just listened to it and then tried to reenact it, like, or uh, I'd do the video along with it, but obviously that's a pain in the butt, and I, you know, scrubbing through videos annoying for trying to figure out where you are in text. Just drag and drop, bloop, like in literally seconds, I just have the text, and then I just read the text. And then Bark is the opposite. Bark and TTS and these sorts of things, these will allow you to take that text, train it on or generate some sort of a voice or train it on someone's voice like myself, and then have it read out that text in that voice. So... This is just a general breakdown of a lot of the tools that I have already seen, and it's not even, that is not a comprehensive list at all. There's tons of stuff that I don't even understand. I just see the names of these things, and I hear that they're really important and they're big deals, but I don't have the technical understanding to really break them down. So if this is such a scary, universal, artificial intelligence, general intelligence mon monolith that's going to destroy everything and is needs to be controlled... Why is it there's one for everything? There's literally a model, and I believe there genuinely will be, a model for every mode of interaction between media, information, language, and text that we have. Not even joking, every single one. Oh, I almost forgot, there's one text to CAD that will create a CAD drawing, a 3D technical drawing of something by describing that thing. This is, it's going to be endless. There's going to be so many of these things. There already are. And the reason is 
is because this is a more fundamental primitive than a tool or some platform with network lock-in that is like Google or Amazon. That is not what this is. This is far more akin to the invention of the keyboard or the mouse. Or actually, maybe a better example is even just the GUI itself. The idea of a graphical user interface with icons that you move, that you use the keyboard and mouse to modify and operate, rather than using literal code punch cards and, uh, and a terminal window to type in command prompts to navigate the machine. This is a new generic form of computation, of software design, a way to turn input into output. And it will be applied to everything. The idea of licensing or controlling or regulating this as a tool itself is not only completely hopeless, but will be such a massive drag on innovation. And I don't think people really respect or really can comprehend how destructive it will be. This is one of those really base layer things. This is like creating a license on the ability to make something out of steel. I think we have a very, very arrogant and presumptive stance on this idea that we can just stop this thing and even that it should be stopped. So we go back to the idea that bad people, it's too powerful and too many bad people will get control of this, will be able to use this thing and therefore it must be controlled, it must be limited, it must be licensed. Not only is this like saying that bad people will be able to use a graphical user interface and do a hundred times, a thousand times more with a computer than they could with a command prompt, because now they don't have to understand how the computer works, they can let the icons and the interface and the tools, the, the, the graphics themselves, tell them how to use it. It's just intuitively able to accomplish these tasks. That is what these LLMs do. They simply give everyone the ability to do these things that were extremely, that required enormous amounts of skill or specific knowledge before. Literally all it does is break down the walls around gate-kept skills, skill sets and information. And I think the underlying presumption, the underlying mental model of that belief is actually dependent on a fear of freedom. The idea of freedom itself that everyone is on an equal playing field, that everyone has the power to control their lives and everyone has the power also to hurt other people because access to anything is not controlled. It is open and people are given the responsibility and the autonomy over their own lives. And part of that fear of freedom, of genuine liberty for people, is a fallacy that the only reason bad people are kept in check is because good people have a power advantage. And that is the only way to balance out evil, is to somehow predict or know that bad people can't get something powerful and only good people can. But there are two massive flaws in that thinking. One is that we can decide who the bad people are before allowing people to use the tools. That rather than a bad person being someone who has committed a crime and therefore needs to be punished, Instead, a bad person can be discovered based on some evaluation or criteria or just making it hard to do something. And therefore, we can just whitelist all the good people and ensure that the bad people who would commit a crime 
never get the access to do so. That is not only a rejection of the presumption of innocence, that if you haven't committed a crime, you are free, you have done nothing wrong, and to treat you like a bad person is, is the crime, that is the evil. And then two, it's to believe that freedom only works because good people have power and bad people are kept from it. Quite to the contrary, the reason freedom works is because no one has a political power advantage, or at least they are not supposed to. But the bigger and more involved you create the state, the more and more that is no longer true. Freedom works because we have freedom of association. Freedom works because we have the power to choose for ourselves, and everyone has equal access to all of the tools at their disposal. It is explicitly the power imbalance that causes problems. It is the power imbalance that creates the worst and most horrific consequences of bad people doing bad things. The problem with Nazis and Nazi Germany wasn't that Nazis existed, that there are bad people in the world who have bad beliefs and actually want to hurt somebody. That's a given. That's the nature of mankind. Conflict exists, period, end of story. The problem was that the Jews and the Poles were defenseless and the German people looked the other way. The problem was the power imbalance, not the fact that power existed. The fallacy of the mental framing is to assume that we can put the good guys in charge of Nazi Germany, in charge of the, all the guns and the state apparatus, and then all the bad guys will be the ones that can't do anything and can't obtain any power. When really what you do is when you create the power dynamic where there is a state that can do whatever the hell it wants and can just make anything illegal and enact violence against its people, bad guys take it over. And the people who think they're good but desire so much to be in that power center end up becoming bad people. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. AI is a balancing tool, not one that furthers an imbalance. So an interesting way to think about this analogy is one of the first and most important things to understand about the liberty mindset when we think about this philosophy of who has the power is understanding that the power imbalance is the, is the only fundamental piece of the puzzle that matters, specifically because we cannot know who the good guys or the bad guys are. If we could, literally the concept of crime, theft, and murder would not be a thing. If we could just look at whoever is in our neighborhood and look at anybody who is our family and just know, well, this is the person who's going to murder us. This is the person who's going to steal everything. And we could just be 100% right all the time. Literally, the problem would be non-existent. And no matter how much someone thinks they can know, they don't. They don't have a clue. It's impossible to know. And that's an absurdity on its face. And then to apply that to the political logic that, oh, we can just get a bunch of people and we'll vote for only the good people to have power is, if you allow me to be frank, even dumber. Because even if there was some sort of a concept of someone who is incredibly skilled and genuinely knows people and could, you know, anticipate that one person is more likely to commit a crime than someone else, not only is that an absurdity, but to then think that people who have no idea who someone else is, that the lowest common denominator of the populace, just the average 
ignorant jackass who has no idea what's going on and probably saw a sign with somebody's name on it or just votes red or just votes blue because that's how it goes. And this is somehow making sure that only good people are in the system, that only good people have this absurd amount of power and control over deciding where, where trillions and trillions of dollars of our unbelievably hard-worked assets and productivity and wages and value go that only good people are going to be in charge of that shit because we've got millions of people together and they're going to pick a name out of a bucket. They're going to watch a couple of speeches because God forbid, no politicians would never lie to get power. It's a ridiculous idea. The reason the U.S. Republic and the idea of freedom was created is to diminish as much as possible down to the tiniest fraction of a corner of anything remotely useful that the government is supposed to actually be engaged in. And now, instead, it's a leviathan of nonsense and corruption and bloat. So what's the problem? How did it get like this? Going back to the analogy, imagine there's a room with a hundred people in it. The presumption of this argument that people will be too powerful with this dangerous weapon, therefore it needs to be controlled, is the idea that if we let the bad people in the room have guns, then that means we will all be at risk. Therefore, we should select only the good people, give them the guns, and everyone else should be defenseless. So let's go back to our undeniable basic reality. We don't know who the bad guys and the good guys are. Not possible. For anyone who thinks it is, we all stop believing in Santa Claus one day as well. Please stop believing in that nonsense. We cannot know. Therefore, the two honest assessments of the situation, objectively, are that either everyone has a gun or just one or a few people have the guns. So in both of those situations, in both of those dynamics, assume there are two quote-unquote bad people. There are two people who are about to just go on a rampant uh, rampage of killing. In the first scenario, they are two people among a group of a hundred with guns. As they start on their rampage of killing, the other 98 will shoot them very, very quickly. Now, obviously, because they have a gun, it's very dangerous. Technology is that way, period. But it is least dangerous if everyone they try to shoot can shoot back. Now imagine the other scenario. The two people going on a killing rampage are the only two people with guns. Probably all 98 of the other people are dead. So back to AI. AI is an extremely fundamental tool. The modeling system is something that we have already seen can be applied to 20, 30 different modalities of, of relationship and text and tool and code and image and pixel and whatever relationship. But even the video stuff is broken down into multiple different models. One of them is a uh, context where like object uh, a model. One of them is a like the flow of pixel model. And one of them is a spatial model. Like the, the, there's so many. I don't even know how the hell they combine these things together to get them to produce the result that they do. But it's fascinating that they can. But I think it's a good example of kind of the combination that we saw in the gentle introduction to LLMs is the fact that you have the, the normal like word relationship, the predicting of the next word in the sentence, but then all, also the attention relationship. And I think a lot of these things are building different types of models for different types of relationships between the words and the structures of the sentence in order to stack them on top of each other to 
to basically, you know, quote unquote, multiply and combine the different types of relationships within the sentence structure and within the words themselves. So in other words, there are multiple models working in tandem to build just an LLM now. So all of this is get, to get to the point, to get to the understanding that there isn't one thing here. There isn't even one LLM. There's hundreds, there's already thousands potentially of these things. And because these things so aggressively democratize the access to tons of things that were limited to professionals before, it's like breaking down the gatekeepers of VFX, of uh, you know, high quality storytelling, uh, animation, of writing, of you know, breaking down summaries, of transcription, of code and program writing and design, of interface, of web design and web web uh, uh, development, of hacking, of penetration testing. All of these things have an explicit group that are good at that thing. And that doesn't mean that those people are only good people. To the contrary, it means nothing about how they use it. The idea that gatekeeping, the concept of hacking from some people not being able to use it, will help to make sure that hackers aren't as powerful is, is silly. It doesn't make any sense or that they're only good people. That's, not, that's never going to be the case. It's not been the case even while hacking is a highly skilled endeavor. But giving the average person the capacity to do that doesn't mean that there's more bad hackers overall or percentage-based. Quite to the contrary, it means that bad, like, evil hackers, black hat hackers, may actually be less influential than they were before. Because now anyone, not just skilled good hackers, white hat hackers, anyone can actually potentially harden their own network their own computer by doing penetration testing and asking an AI to figure out how to plug those holes. If you close off license and regulate and try to force all of these liability requirements on the normal person, on the inability for the average person to have access to things, these things out of fear, you're going to get exactly the world that we're afraid of getting. The one where the bad hackers have a 10x, a 100x capability, and nobody has any mode of defense. Nobody has the basic hacking tools to figure out how to just shut down the easy holes. The fear of the average person, of too many quote-unquote bad people having access to this tool, is the fear of removing power imbalances. Google and OpenAI and Amazon do not have a multiple order at order of magnitude advantage over people running their own and having access to just a slightly good, better computer, an A100 uh, uh, a GPU or whatever it is. And there is no network lock-in. The, the things that contributed to the incredible centralization and feedback network effect of the things, of the platforms and networks like Google and Amazon and Facebook and Twitter and all of these things, they do not exist in AI. They do not exist. The sheer number and variety of models should prove that. Every single time I hear about a new one that's some fascinating thing, it's something I've never heard about before. Not even, not the model, but the group, the people who are doing it. Animate everything? I, I don't know. Or animate anyone? I have no idea who that is. I just found out about them when I heard about Animate Anyone. 
So I think the philosophical underpinning, the mental framework of the everybody is going to have access to these tools and that's dangerous and we need to stop it is at its root a fear of freedom. And what's funny is that it actually is perfectly at odds with the next fear that is usually lined up right behind it. Number two is that it will take everyone's jobs. Therefore, it needs to be controlled and limited. This is yet another argument in my mind as to why it must be as open as possible. Because if it's going to take everyone's jobs, then everybody needs access to it because they won't have jobs. Just think about it. From a very elementary foundation, the, the claim, quote-unquote, it's going to take everybody's jobs, is an explicit claim that AI will be able to do everything for us. If it can't do everything for us, then it doesn't take jobs. It, doesn't, it certainly doesn't take the jobs of the things it can't do. It has to be able to do a thing in order to take the job away, to make it obsolete. So this is essentially a claim that it will be better at summarizing, at transcription, it will be better at, you know, all the games, it will be better at doing our dishes, it will be better at managing our businesses and our, our planning and all of our, our home life and organization and schedules and all of these things that it, the AI, AI tools will be better than having humans, paying humans to do those things. But think about what that means. That means that everyone could actually be prosperous entirely of their own accord as long as they have access to AI. To say that it must be limited and controlled because it's going to take away jobs is to say that corporations won't need us anymore because AI will do everything that we can do, thus they can simply fire us all, but then also they should be the only ones allowed to use it, even though the only thing that would make it okay for us to all lose our jobs and still be autonomous and still be able to run our lives and produce and make value of our own accord is if we had access to AI. So if you think that AI is actually going to kill everyone's jobs, we should do the exact opposite of limit or control it. Because it would mean that to put it behind a license, something that can literally manage our entire lives, that can help us accomplish anything that we want to accomplish and produce anything that we need to produce so that we can trade and we can actually thrive without needing a job, it will literally license the very thing necessary for human prosperity. That is the dystopia that only the corporations and governments have it, and they also just happen to be the people who are by far the most likely to use it to kill people because they're already doing it. To restrict license or to create onerous liability regulations on AI, if we actually think it's going to take everyone's jobs, is exactly the recipe where everybody still gets fired, but now no one can use the, the tool necessary to make our lives autonomous and productive, even in the face of not, being, not having work with the corporation. And the whole political discourse around everybody having a job, as if a job is some form of wealth or prosperity in and of itself, is absurd. We don't want jobs. What we want is stability, security, and wealth. Having a job that's not what having a job is. It's actually a form of dependence. It's a trade for dependence. 
But if we could get rid of all jobs and make it so that everyone could run and manage and be productive, produce their own food, make their own housing, continue to better their own lives without a job, that would by and far be the best and most complete solution to the poverty problem without even breaking a sweat. Jobs for the sake of jobs are f***ing stupid. Okay, so the last one. The, the last point was it will cause that there's an existential risk here, that this could cause the end of humanity, therefore it needs to be stopped, we need to uninvent this thing, and we need to pause it. Now, I feel like we've already kind of hit this topic well enough from a couple of different angles, but I do want to hit it one more time, just because a couple of the things that uh, Ng says in this Financial Times article that I linked, um, I think are a good way to, a pretty informative perspective on it. So I want to read a quote from this, a section from this article. So RM, the interviewer, says, it just seems like the other side is louder. And he's talking about the doomsayer side. Aang says, and frankly, you're the media, so you can help. If it bleeds, it leads, and similarly for fear as well. When lots of people signed the Center for AI Safety uh, Statement, the CAIS, saying that AI is dangerous like nuclear weapons, the media covered that. When there have been much more sensible statements, for example, Mozilla saying that open source is a great way to ensure AI safety, almost none of the media cover that. I think that the CAIS move was one of the most unfortunate things because a lot of regulators are confused about AI. The statement that when you think about AI, you should think about nuclear weapons. That message, that misleading message, came through loud and clear and distorted the thinking among the regulators. I saw the impact it had in D.C. I see no reason to make an analogy between AI and nuclear weapons. It is an insane analogy. One brings more intelligence and helps make better decisions, and the other blows up cities. What have these two things to do with each other? The risk of regulatory capture is starting to dawn on more nations, because a lot of generative AI talent is concentrated in the U.S. today, and one of the best ways to make sure that cutting-edge technology is widely disseminated is open source. Now, the, uh, one of the things that I think he does a really good job, or I, I really agree with his take on here, is this idea that it's a nuclear weapon. Because the concept, it's, it's, it's just not. I, I completely agree it's an insane analogy. And it wouldn't be too unlike saying that one person having a graphical user interface computer where they can make the computer do things at a hundred times the rate of somebody who's using coded punch cards, that that means they have a nuclear weapon, just because it's vastly more powerful in the sense of what it can do and how quickly they can do it. But to then say that this means that the relative risk of people having access to it is comparable to a nuclear bomb is absurd. Like, what people do with this thing is build stuff. The, they're explicitly made to build things. It is a tool no different from a hammer. And the fact that somebody can use it in a bad way is completely irrelevant to the concept of the tool itself. It isn't a bomb. You don't do anything else with a nuclear bomb. It has no purpose to build things. It literally just explodes and eviscerates humanity. But in the context of AI, 
it it's not even it's only a nuclear bomb it only even has slightly that sort of capability if one person has it and nobody else has it it's like the difference going back to our dynamic of the people of the hundred people in a room everyone having a gun versus just the two bad people having a gun that's the nuclear bomb scenario is the two people have a gun and so they can just go through and just indiscriminately murder everyone else in the room at their leisure if they have enough ammunition, they could essentially do the damage of a nuclear bomb. If this was a situation of a city, they could just walk through the city and just completely eviscerate people if no one had the ability to defend themselves. That is the only situation where AI is a quote-unquote nuclear bomb. And that's a problem of people not having access, not the people who do have access. Because as soon as everyone has an AI, all of this supposed risk kind of just goes away. If everyone can do it, then it's not really a big problem because we'll also have the very tool we need to know and to build our defenses against it. The danger would be if only the government had AI and so they could just penetrate everybody's network and do massive, you know, corporations or government. They just have mass surveillance. They can just spy on everyone. They can manipulate and control what everyone is doing. But no one has the ability to even see or understand how this is happening. They have no way to close the gaps and only the professional black hat and white hat hackers, the people who are incredibly skilled, who gatekeep the very concept of code and you know penetration testing and understanding the, the idea of networks and these things. They are the only ones who even have a ghost of a chance of protecting themselves but then even they are more vulnerable because everyone around them is vulnerable. If you give everyone access and they all have the capability to test their security, to have an AI write their port forwarding and their, their firewall to optimize against the very that very same AI being able to get into the network, well, now people who have no idea what any of this stuff is actually have the tools necessary to go through the process of defending themselves against them. There is no scenario where everyone in the world having a nuclear bomb makes any individual nuclear bomb less destructive. Yet, AI is exactly that way. The capabilities of any single AI of doing damage is entirely reliant upon the access of AI as a defensive tool. If everybody has it, no one has a nuclear bomb. More and more I think about this, the more I think that's just an absolute absurdity. It's just a ridiculous statement that is built entirely upon a mountain of ignorance about what these things are and what they can even be used for. Again, the best course of action is absolutely open access and open source models. But then there's another, there's another element, and there's a video that I watched recently that, um, and it's from, uh, what's the guy's name? Let me find it real quick. It's Jan Lacoon. Jan Lecun, Le Jan Lecun, I, I don't know, don't know how to say it, but uh, he is a professor at NYU and the chief scientist, the chief AI scientist at Meta. But I could do an entire episode on just this one clip, but I just wanted to share it because one of the reasons why I think this AI is an existential threat and in everyone having access to AI is a super dangerous and terrible thing. We got to stop people from bad people from having access is that it's a form of uh, projection. It's a fear of people having power. 
of individuals having enough power, have, having equal power as the state or whatever belief system they have that's quote unquote keeping all the bad people in place. But that one of the things we do is we not only project our fear, this, this irrational fear and logical fallacy onto AI, we, we project it onto the systems of AI that we are going to build with it, but we also project our desires, which are, which are not related to our intelligence. That intelligence and the social, our social struggles and our social conflicts are not one and the same, and we equate them. And I want, uh, I want uh, Jan to, to really uh, give this clip to really break it down, because I think he just puts it beautifully. And if I had to pick a specific, like, this is the underlying thesis for AI Unchained, I feel like this is such a great way to put the argument. Here's the thing. There is no question, absolutely no question, that at some point in the future, perhaps decades from now, we'll have AI systems that are as smart as humans in all the domains where humans are smart. And because humans are specialized, those systems might be specialized in different ways, um, but might be as, will be as smart as human, if, if not significantly smarter in all domains where humans are smart. Now, you say, oh my God, they're gonna take over the world. No. Intelligence has nothing to do with the desire to dominate. Let's take humans. So humans have a somewhat desire to dominate. Some humans, not everybody. Um, and it's not the smartest among us who want to dominate. We have examples of this on the international political scene, you know, <laughs> on a daily basis. Um, there is probably some evolutionary reasons for this, right? If you are not that smart, you need the help from others, so you need to influence them. Uh, if you're smart, you can survive by yourself. Um, that's the first point. Second point is we are used to working with people who are smarter than us. I don't know about you, but I used to lead a research lab, and the only people I would hire were people who were smarter than me. It's actually great to work with people who are smarter than you. Um, and our relationship with future AI assistant, which will help us in our daily lives, right? Project ourselves 10, 20 years from now. We'll have AI assistants that will help us in our daily lives. And they'll probably be smarter than us. But they will make us smarter. We will direct them. They will be subservient to us. It's not because they are smart that they want to dominate. The idea that you want to dominate is due to the fact that we are a social species. Because we're a social species, we need to be able to influence others, and that's where domination and submission comes from. We are hierarchically organized social species. Evolution built that into us. It built that into chimpanzees, baboons, you know, dogs, I mean wolves. It didn't build this into orangutans. Orangutans have no desire to dominate anybody because they're not a social species, and they are as, almost as, as smart as we are. Um, so that has nothing to do with intelligence. You can have a very intelligent system that has no desire to dominate at all. And so the way we will design those systems is to be smart. In other words, you give them a goal, they can solve that goal for you. But who determines the goal? We do. They will determine sub-goals. And the question of, you know, the technical question of how you do this is not solved. This is something that we're imagining in the future. This objective-driven AI I was talking, talking about before. But that's the future. Now, if we imagine that future, imagine that all of your interaction with the digital world and the world of information is through an AI agent. 
those AI agents will be the repository of all human knowledge. It'd be kind of like Wikipedia you can talk to and can do inferences and everything, okay? But knows more than Wikipedia. This would be a common platform, sort of like the internet today. It has to be open. It cannot be proprietary. It's way too dangerous for this to be proprietary. You know, that's your next movie. That's really the scary stuff. If you have a small number of uh, West Coast companies controlling uh, super intelligent uh, AI systems, they can control everybody's opinion, culture, everything. Maybe the US government will go along with this. That's called regulatory, regulatory capture. But I tell you, no other government in the world will, will find this acceptable. They don't want American culture to dominate theirs. They will have to build their own LLMs. So the only way to, to make this work is if you have basically open source, basic uh, structure. This is one reason why Meta open source Lama 2, because it's a basic infrastructure. And, and before that, you know, Meta released PyTorch. ChatGPT is built with PyTorch. It's a software system to build AI systems. Um, so this will have to be open source. And the way you, you would train those systems will have to be crowdsourced because you want those systems to be the repository of all human knowledge. And so all humans have to contribute to it. And it will not contribute to a proprietary system built by OpenAI or whoever, or by Meta. It will have to be open source. Despite, like, regardless of how dangerous you think this is, that's the way it has to go. I thought this was just an amazing argument. First, the concept of separating the social element from intelligence. That dominance has nothing, the desire to dominate has nothing to do with intelligence. It is a, it is a consequence of a social species. It is something that humans have. Us creating intelligence in a computer does not mean, why, the, why would the computer give a shit about dominating humans if it doesn't even need us? Under the assumption that it's going to be some artificial general intelligence thing, whatever, which I still, I think even is just a silly notion. But again, I think the, the bigger issue is that we are projecting, that we're putting our desire to nom dominate, our fear of being dominated onto this thing that has none of it. And then we're let, allowing ourselves to destroy critical infrastructure for the prosperity of humankind to lock it down and gatekeep it, which is exactly what will create all the disaster scenarios we are afraid of. Like he talks about towards the end of the thing where he talks about like this would basically be a Wikipedia that you can talk to. It would be a form of a sort of collection of all human knowledge, which means that it could affect uh, it, it like it would be so unbelievably useful that it would have some sort of interaction at every stage of our day. It would be something that we related to. It would be something that we searched with. It would be something that necessarily filtered our information as more and more media just gets, just gets broadcast and created at an insane pace. We have to build in filters. We already have to. It's like trying to drink from a fire hose. There's nothing, all you can do is filter what you want to see. You filter out the information and the values that you want to be exposed to because otherwise the scope of what could, of the information flow that could come to you is so vast that in three seconds more information, media, text, everything is created than you could spend an entire lifetime to just to consume, 
just to read and watch in three seconds. And then in another three seconds, you've got another lifetime's worth of stuff. Filtering will be the default state of all of the internet, of everything that we do. Which means if you have power, if you have control over those filters that are unilateral, that are proprietary, that is an unbelievably dangerous scenario. Especially when everyone has to work with it, when you have to be whitelisted to even have access to tools like this. That is the horror movie outcome. That is the society-destroying path. Because it means a few people have an ungodly amount of power and they will use it against the people. Period. They always have. It is the natural state of history. Our best and only and greatest defense against this is open source everything and open access to everyone. And luckily, I think it's already going to be too hard to stop, but I would like it to not have to be a vicious fight with lots of collateral damage and innocent people caught in its wake. I would love it if we just weren't stupid, arrogant fools and to not make the dumb, destructive decision that we always tend to make. If you think AI needs to be controlled out of fear, then I urge you just to recognize that fear is a terrible reason to make a decision. And it almost universally results in a bad one. Fear is a result of ignorance. Understand what it is that you are afraid of before you make an assessment. I'm no AI expert, but I'm at least trying to make sense of these things. I'm trying to understand it because it's fascinating. It's an incredible tool. The amount of things that I have done with it still blows my mind to this day. And I'm not, I, can, I feel like I'm missing the boat and I feel like I'm behind and I can't even keep up with everything. And I'm not taking the t proper time to really dig into it. And even with that, I have done so much. It is incredible. I use it every single day. I would have an insanely hard time going back to the way things worked before I was using these tools. Seri like, legitimately. I am dependent on them that much. And I say dependent, but I don't mean that in a bad sense. In the same way that I'm dependent on the GUI, the graphical user interface. If, the, if I couldn't move a mouse around and click icons on a computer, I'd be in a really bad spot. It'd be a pain in the ass to use my computer, and I'd be about one... One 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 thousandth as effective. I honestly think that the entire ecosystem should be left alone. We already have regulations for the applications of these things. Like in the context of using AI for self-driving cars, all we need are tests that the car has to pass. It doesn't matter whether it's AI or it's an incredibly sophisticated program that's not an AI model. If it passes all the safety tests and all the edge case tests with flying colors, great. But outside of some specific consideration or way to test AI that you wouldn't just normally test the average program, we don't need to put some special license on using AI for it. We just need to hold it to the same standards. That's exactly the same with medical applications, with insurance applications, with all legal applications, all of these things, if the standards are good, if the tests for knowing whether or not this is a positive or a damaging thing to be accessible or to be available on the market, if those are good, then it doesn't need, AI doesn't need some special set of rules. 
AI just needs to pass the current standards and the current tests. In fact, the only rule, the only law or potential quote-unquote regulation that I think actually should be considered is that you can't have a proprietary model, is that you have to open source it. Because the dangers of one being gatekept, the dangers of not knowing what's going into these things, and the dangers of being constantly influenced by one that you don't have access to, that you can't test, that you can't benchmark, that you don't know how, how to, it actually affects you or what it's actually doing, that's the danger. So the law or the regulation, if anything, should be that everyone should have access to it and it must be open source. That the closed proprietary option is simply not allowed. That's one that even as an strict liberty-minded person, I could actually get behind. I think that is more in the nature of aligning with the natural state of information, with the natural state of technology. And that's genuinely one of the only things I could get behind from a regulatory standpoint. Otherwise, I think it is the most blind and the most ignorant trying to build the house that everybody else has to live in. I can't imagine a group of people less qualified and or more ignorant on the issue to build the laws and regulations around AI than Congress. And I can't imagine a, an influence more ignorant, fearful, and foolish than the general public trying to influence and decide who it is that makes those decisions. I think far more likely than not, the government is more likely to set us back in a massive way and cause exactly the problems that we are afraid of. And I think it's important that we understand, we stop, we stop and pause to get some sort of understanding before we make stupid, rash, arrogant decisions. A little humility goes a long way. So anyway, that's, those are my current thoughts about the fears of AI and where I think our best path into the future lies. So with that, uh, don't forget to check out the links and uh, in the show notes and the bitcoinaudible.com slash AI where I have links to a bunch of the things that I've talked about. Um, and I will also have, I think I'm going to try to figure out how to, on Flare, F-L-A-R-E, which is a Noster-based uh, kind of YouTube equivalent, I'm going to figure out how to post that clip that I did of uh, Jan uh, here at the end. I'm going to post that video just to see how it works, just to see how it uh, uh, works on that uh, platform, because I'm really excited about video coming to Noster, and it's another one of those things where I think replacing platforms and replacing social proprietary social networks with open protocols is such a critical part of our future um, and for correcting the wrongs that we have done, the imbalances that we have created over the last 10 to 15 years. And I think AI is going to be a massive, massive part of that story. So don't forget to check them out. It's right there in the description. And also a huge thank you to our lovely sponsors, to Swan Bitcoin, to swan.com, for providing an incredible Bitcoin-only uh, onboarding experience for all of the financial tools and services that you're looking for. And then for CoinKite and the cold card hardware wallet and the tap signer and the SATS cards and all, all the great products and Bitcoin hardware security devices that they have. Uh, it, it really is amazing, the suite of stuff that they have built over there. You should definitely check it out. The link and the details and the discount code 
will be in the show notes. With that, thank you guys so much for listening to AI Unchained. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. An open source model is a general purpose technology. It can get used to build a healthcare app, a customer service app, a financial services app, and on and on. So if you regulate that core technology, you're slowing everything down, and probably without making anything meaningfully safer. Andrew Ng